The reality is we may never have a conclusion or a complete closure on who murdered mum and dad. And the frustrating part for me are the powers holding the conclusion of this trial back. Everyone can see the sheer arrogance of Russia, the misinformation from Russia, the lack of acknowledgement of any involvement from Russia, and their blunt denials. The Big Steal is, as the title suggests, about theft. First, we detailed how Vladimir Putin became the richest man in the world by stealing the wealth of his country, the biggest country in the world, Russia, through crime, cronyism and corruption. Then we examined how Putin stole Russia's hopes for democracy and economic development. In this episode, we begin with the story of how Putin, his agents and surrogates steal life itself. Good morning, everybody. Yesterday, Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 took off from Amsterdam and was shot down over Ukraine near the Russian border. Nearly 300 innocent lives were taken. A lot of relatives said they need emotional support again five years after the disaster because Russia is still deliberately obstructing the investigation. Men, women, children, infants who had nothing to do with the crisis in Ukraine. Their deaths are a outrage of unspeakable proportions. On the 17th of July 2014, Malaysian Airlines Flight 17, MH17, took off from Amsterdam for Kuala Lumpur. On board were 283 passengers and 15 crew. The plane's route was over Ukraine, where pro-Russian rebels, supported by Putin's troops, were trying to destabilize the Ukraine government. Pro-Russian forces had invaded and occupied parts of the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. Flight MH17 was shot down over the Donbass by a Russian Bucks surface-to-air missile. All 298 people on board were killed. Russia continues to deny responsibility. Our immediate focus will be on recovering those who were lost, investigating exactly what happened, and putting forward the facts. I want to point out there will likely be misinformation as well. I think it's very important for folks to sift through what is factually based and what is simply speculation. But there is a further element of MH17 that causes harm, confusion and great anger. And that is the relentless misinformation, denials and lies peddled by the Russian state about what occurred. Western intelligence agencies, the Ukraine government, the Dutch Safety Board and the Dutch-led Joint Investigation Team found Russia's fingerprints all over the scene of the crime, the mass murder of innocent civilians from 10 different countries, mostly Dutch nationals. Uh, I can uh, confirm that uh, the nationalities of the victims were as follows. Netherlands, 154. Malaysia, 43. Indonesia, 12. The United Kingdom, 9. Germany 4, Belgium 4, the Philippines 3, Canada 1. Uh, there are still 41 whose nationality is unconfirmed. There are only certain types of anti-aircraft missiles that can reach up 30,000 feet uh, and shoot down a passenger jet. Investigators found that the Buck missile came from the 53rd Anti-Aircraft Missile Brigade of the Russian Federation. 
a group of separatists can't shoot down uh, uh, military tr transport planes, or they claim uh, shoot down fighter jets without sophisticated equipment and sophisticated training, and that is coming from Russia. The missile was brought to the Donbass from Russia early on the day MH17 was shot down. The Kremlin's implausible deniability machine went into overdrive. The statements you've been hearing and those that follow are from relatives of the victims read by an actor. They're lying. We know they're lying and they know that we know that they're lying. Revealing the truth is part of justice. The truth shines a bright light on the dark and deliberate campaign of denial and misinformation, which compounds our grief and anger. I want the Russian president to stop lying and admit to the shooting down of the plane. And I want him to tell the Russian people what he's done. Of course, I know he won't do that, but that is my wish. It hurts when the president of a big country that supplied the weapon acts as if all this did not happen. That is not true. I wonder how he would feel if this happened to his own daughter. Seven years later, the trial of four suspects accused of bringing the flight down is underway in the Netherlands, in absentia. Typically, Russia refuses to cooperate. My family sees Russia as the country of lies, manipulation, fake news and hypocrisy. Are the leaders of the Russian government just like their mass murderers? Cold, without pity, without conscience, without heart? Perhaps inhuman is a better word. The refusal of the Kremlin to admit the truth about this, and many other atrocities, is a reminder of how Vladimir Putin operates. To protect his power and wealth back home, he relies on the old KGB technique of sowing confusion, disorder and deceit abroad. Back in the 1990s, it wasn't supposed to be like this. By 1991, the Cold War was over. The Soviet Union collapsed. Democracy won. American intellectuals talked of the end of history. President George H.W. Bush spoke of a new world order when Russia and its satellite nations were finally freed from what President Ronald Reagan called the evil empire. At the dawn of the 21st century, a free people must now choose to shape the forces of the information age and the global society to unleash the limitless potential of all our people, and yes, to form a more perfect union. That was President Bill Clinton in his second inaugural address in January 1997. The same year, Tony Blair became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom with talk of a third way and the prospect of new democratic governments springing up in Eastern Europe, Latin America and elsewhere. But how does all this look now? The journalist and historian Anne Applebaum writes of the twilight of democracy and the worldwide rise of an authoritarian mindset, angry and highly divisive politics stretching from America to Britain to Hungary and Poland, Brazil, the Philippines, India and elsewhere. Here's what Anne thinks of how Putin views democracy. He sees the language of democracy um, in a way, the ideology of democracy as a personal challenge to him. What he's most afraid of is a democratic revolution in Russia. Um, and so his foreign policy for the last decade has been predicated on the idea not only that he needs to defeat that at home, but that he needs to undermine democracies abroad. The old left-right divisions, 
you know, I mean, they're kind of ghosts of the past. I mean, they go on existing in our political language because we don't know what to do with them. But really, when you look at the behavior of the Venezuelan dictatorship, which is a so-called left-wing dictatorship, you know, or the behavior of Russia, which is a so-called right-wing dictatorship or authoritarian dictatorship, the means by which the leaders took power, their their behavior towards their judiciaries, towards free media, towards civil society, um, is so similar that really what we should be thinking about is something, you know, is a completely different classification of regimes that we're talking about open open societies, liberal societies, liberal democracies um, against um, this this new breed of autocracy. Vladimir Putin was first inaugurated as president of Russia in May 2000, just as Europe hit the peak of Western triumphalism. The new world order seemed real among Russia's neighbors. In 2002, seven former East Bloc countries, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia and Slovenia, began accession talks with NATO. They joined the Western Alliance in 2004. That same year, the European Union took in 10 new members, seven of which had been in the former Soviet or Communist bloc. Some hoped for the eventual triumph of liberal democratic ideas in Russia itself. Could Russia become a European friend, even an ally? It hasn't worked out like that. Ben Emerson is a British barrister and formerly the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Counterterrorism. He sees Russia as the bear next door. The military action has typically been directed at Russia's near neighbours, former parts of the Soviet Union that became independent and wanted to move either closer to NATO in the case of Georgia or closer to the European Union in the case of Ukraine. 20% of Georgia is still occupied by Russia. The whole of Crimea has been unlawfully uh, uh, occupied by Russia the war in eastern Ukraine, which is an endless, horrible, bloody conflict resembling the trenches of the First World War, is left there festering and supported and sponsored by Russia in order permanently to destable Ukraine, one of the largest states uh, in Europe and part of the axis between east and west. The attempt to tackle and destabilize the European social order is absolutely central to the Putin project. It's not just about military occupation. It's not just about influencing elections. It's not just about strange targeted assassinations here and there. It's not just about suborning international institutions like Interpol, the UN, the EU, the Council of Europe and so forth. Although all of those things play a very important role. But throughout, above, within, marbled all the way through all of that strategy, is a strategy to siphon the wealth of the Russian people into the pockets of a handful of people who run a kleptocracy. Unlike Soviet leaders in the old USSR, Vladimir Putin does not offer an ideological challenge to the West. He offers a different style, authoritarian, contemptuous of democracy and, after his years in the KGB, a shameless ability simply to lie, to kill, and to turn Russia into his personal money-making machine. Luke Harding is a journalist for The Guardian, the author of Mafia State and Shadow State, two books on Russia's kleptocrats. There's also a kind of enormous private project, which is that Putin and his friends, many of them from the KGB, um, from from Leningrad and, and, and later St. Petersburg, 
sort of run the state for their own private financial purposes and gain. And they, they've all, by the way, they, they've all become multi-billionaires. You, you look at the Forbes list in Russia and those at the top tend to be either Putin's old friends or to have close relations with him. And also that this money can be used for various purposes. So so the state budget can be used for um, hosting hosting the football, for example, in 2018, which R- Russia did the World Cup, but also for building an extravagant uh, and ridiculously opulent palace for Putin on the Black Sea, which Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader now in jail, recently exposed. Um, so, so there's a fusion between sort of private interest and 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 uh, and, and the state, um, but Putin ultimately is the state. Um, I mean, I, I would say I would argue that he's the richest man in the world, um, possibly the richest man in human history. So, how should we deal with our Putin problem? Plundering Russia's resources, contemptuous of democracy, and ruthless and shameless when it comes to denying Russian involvement in the deaths of those on MH17 and elsewhere? Can we contain his aggressive foreign policy and come to terms with the fact that our own liberal democracies are being undermined as Putin appears to be winning the battle of political styles? Lying, as we've all noticed, has become normalised across Western democracies. Peter Ricketts, Lord Ricketts, served as chair of Britain's Joint Intelligence Committee under Prime Minister Tony Blair and was the UK government's first national security advisor from 2010 to 2012. His latest book, Hard Choices, explores many of the issues we discuss in The Big Steel. Russia is a declining power, a reckless, unpredictable power that hasn't yet uh, adapted to the fact that it is no longer a great power. And I'm not sure which is more dangerous. I think in many ways, the declining power is the more unpredictable one. It's not a military threat to the UK, but it seems to see all Western countries as adversaries um, and to think that keeping us off balance and surprising us with its behavior is somehow in Russia's interest. So I think it is, it is a, a real uh, irritant. Um, I don't believe it's a sort of existential national security risk. The West has tried to respond to Russian adventurism in various ways, including on 25th of June 2021 sending a warship, HMS Defender, into waters off Crimea, part of Ukraine annexed by Russia in 2014. This was essentially, obviously, Britain making a point that it did not accept the annexation of Crimea. Russia calls its troops in the Donbass an incursion into Ukraine, not an invasion, although in 2021 the Kremlin deployed up to 80,000 troops in an exercise in intimidation on the Ukraine border. Allies fully support Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. And we call on Russia to de-escalate immediately Stop it, the president voiced our concerns over the sudden Russian military buildup uh, and increasing aggression on the border of Ukraine uh, and called on Russia to de-escalate tensions. And it's not just Ukraine. In 2007, a series of cyber attacks froze bank accounts and other online transactions in Estonia. In 2008, in a five-day war, Russian troops entered the Republic of Georgia in the Caucasus. Today, Russia has launched a full-scale military invasion of Georgia. Russian forces, including air, land, sea, and airborne forces, are massed against and attacking our sovereign nation. Russia's actions this week have raised serious questions about its intentions in Georgia. 
and the region. These actions have substantially damaged Russia's standing in the world. They're still there, and so is the threat. For the four years when Donald Trump was in the White House, the American president seemed to admire the style of his Russian counterpart, to such an extent that many speculated if Trump verged on being a Russian asset. But Mark Galliotti, the author of several books on Putin's Russia, doesn't accept that analysis. The Russians never really acted as if they had a friend in the White House because Trump actually didn't really control Russia policy. Congress had taken that unto itself. And from the Russians' point of view, the thing about Trump was, look, they knew that he would throw anyone and everyone under the bus to protect himself. They knew they didn't have anyone reliable. And they also knew he was unpredictable. And something that I heard time and time again talking to people within the Russian Foreign Service and connected to it is a sense that they... They didn't mind someone who was hostile, but they wanted someone who was predictable and who was professional. And let's be honest, Trump was neither of those. Trump's successor, the former Senate Foreign Relations Committee longtime member Joe Biden, has been much more suspicious of Putin's Russia. Mark Galliotti again. The Russian perspective on Biden is, again, not that he's a friend, but they're not expecting to have a friend in the United States. But at least he is a grown-up. And that's something that I heard, again, several people use exactly that phrase, that at least he's an adult, that you know where you de- you, you're operating. You can compare their interests with your interests. You can reach a deal. And it's a deal that you think will actually last. That's the point. It's actually that once you've ag- reached some kind of an agreement with the Americans, you can have some faith in it. The good news for Putin is that a United States so obviously divided at home cannot be entirely united abroad. The profound polarisation of American politics, the evenly balanced US Senate, and the continuing grumblings from Trump supporters that the presidency was stolen by Biden are part of America's culture of confusion that Putin successfully exploits. The financier and former investor in Russia, Bill Browder, explains how Trump was beneficial to Putin. Well, he did something which I could have never imagined would happen, which is before Trump, there was there was never any daylight between um, Democrats and Republicans mm-hmm. um, on what to do with Russia, and now there is some subset of people in America who are you know in Fox News saying you know I would trust Putin more than I trust Biden, and that's just remarkable that 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 Americans could in any way find any sympathy for Vladimir Putin and his and his dictatorship. It's just remarkable that I, mean, I could have never imagined in a million years. That would have happened. It's extraordinary to think that an American president in that analysis has done more to uh, for the soft kind of propaganda for Russia than the Russians have managed to do directly themselves. It was the biggest political, geopolitical coup in history. Mm-hmm. To have an American president question the value of NATO, to have an American question, you know, create 20% of the population that supports Putin... Um, to have an American president say that 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 Putin is a, uh, a good man and and uh, he, we should we should bring him back into the fold, it's it's remarkable. Joe Biden has a clear and simple view of Vladimir Putin. Asked if Russia's leader was a killer, Biden agreed. When the two men met in Geneva last June, it was as you might expect, formal, cold, and brief. But ultimately, Putin got what he wanted, which was a face-to-face summit meeting with the President of the United States. I must tell you, the tone of the entire meetings, I guess it was a total of four hours, was good, positive, 
There wasn't any any uh, strident action taken. So what can we expect from a US president rethinking America's worldwide commitments and a Russian president probing for American weakness? Well, that is the question, isn't it? President Biden has outlined a framework of relations with Putin's Russia, which allows for cooperation where possible, which includes a frank assessment of Russia's aggression and willingness to resist it, and seeks a more, this is the Biden's administration words, um, a more predictable and stable relationship. Daniel Fried was U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs from 2005 to 2009, and Ambassador to Poland from 1997 to 2000. He recently wrote, together with Alexander Verspo, a paper on how the West should deal with Russia for the Atlantic Council. I asked him to summarize some of the main points. Initial signs were that Putin has no interest in a stable and predictable relationship because he is uh, engaged in intensified aggression, both directly against the United States through cyber. And I think it is not credible to say that the cyber attacks on U.S. infrastructure had nothing to do with the Russian government. And an alarming article published under Putin's name that lays the basis for further territorial claims against Ukraine and aggression against Ukraine. So those are not good signs. The Biden administration has nevertheless appeared to pull back from the most its most aggressive options with response in response to, to Putin's standing aggression and seems to be looking for a bit of a stand down. Much depends on what Putin does. If after the initial bluster, Putin does stand down, there may be some basis for, as the Biden team puts it, a more stable and predictable relationship. But I wouldn't count on that. Putin's claims against Ukraine are important to him. The United States and Germany recently issued a joint statement with respect to Nord Stream 2. It was very controversial. The Ukrainians and the Poles and others hated it. The Biden administration defended it, not in terms of relations with Russia, but in terms of relations with Germany. But I'm raising this because that joint statement, whatever the detailed language, that joint statement represents a political commitment by the U.S. and Germany to come to Ukraine's assistance. I don't mean through military means, but to support Ukraine in the event of new Russian aggression. We own it. That joint statement means that the Germans own it too, because of Nord Stream. Now, if Putin doesn't act against Ukraine, very well, and then the Biden administration may even claim vindication. But the track record is not encouraging. For example, in 2008, Putin, in a speech to, at a NATO summit, to the NATO-Russia summit in Bucharest in April 2008, laid a claim to Crimea. I was there. I heard him. We didn't, we, the U.S. government, did not pay sufficient attention to that. We learned to our discomfort later that Putin meant it. He acted upon it. It's always a good idea to pay attention to what leaders actually say. Not what people say about what they said, but what they actually said. 
just like it's useful to read documents instead of press articles about documents. Putin has now laid the basis for a claim to much more Ukrainian territory by essentially asserting that the Ukrainian nation doesn't really exist except in close association to and subordination to Moscow. Putin had earlier raised much wider territorial claims against Ukraine um, uh, shortly after the invasion of Crimea and part of the Donbass. But he backed off those claims under pressure of US and European sanctions and Ukrainian resistance. That article suggests he may be back to them. Now, the reason I've raised this is because you asked about the state of US-Russian relations. And I could give you a theoretical answer, a, a conceptual or abstract answer. But the fact is, those relations will develop in response to real world events, and in particular, in response to what Putin does. What he does at home. Does Alexei Navalny die in prison, for example? The United States has been tempted periodically, and the Biden administration has also been tempted to regard Putin's repression at home as not central to US-Russia relations. Whatever the theoretical merits of such an argument, and I don't think much of them, such distinctions are difficult to maintain in practice. Try it, or rather, put yourself in the position of National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who, when asked on one of the US Sunday talk shows, news talk shows, was asked what the US response would be if Navalny did die in prison. And Jake Sullivan said the re response would be very strong. And I have reason to believe that there wasn't much of a response prepared. But at that moment, I believe, and I, I'm not certain I'm right, but I believe that Jake Sullivan, who is extremely smart and also quick and also politically savvy, which is critical in that position, understood that a show of measured indifference to Navalny's fate was not sustainable. So much depends on Putin's repression at home, his aggression against Ukraine, if it comes, his actions in Belarus against the democracy movement, aggression against European countries. U.S.-Russia relations will develop in response to events. President Biden also has no end of political problems at home, including his ambitious ideas for economic and infrastructure investment, plus tackling social and racial divisions. Moreover, his pivot of American interest away from Europe to the Pacific and China is his top foreign policy priority. Keir Giles is a senior consulting fellow of the Russia and Eurasia programme at Chatham House. There were high hopes for how President Biden would change everything when he came in, simply by not being beholden to Russia and not enacting Russian policy imperatives for the United States. Now, some of those, of course, have been disappointed when people who were expecting a firmer line from Biden against Russia have uh, been let down, they think, by the way that he has capitulated to Russia over Nord Stream and not shown as firm a line as they would hope for over cyber attacks on the United States. But still, it's a huge huge change having somebody who is actually willing to speak out against what Russia does and to criticize President Putin and his behaviors. 
It's true that Biden does give more predictability than Trump did. But on the other hand, I'm not so sure that Russia itself is unpredictable, even under Putin, because so often Russia does exactly what it said it was going to do in the first place. I think the most important thing now, as it has been for some time, is recognition of the nature of the relationship with Russia and recognition of the fact that Russia simply does not desire a close cooperative relationship with the United States on the US's terms or with the West as a whole. Russia doesn't see that there's any substitute for an aggressive and and inimical relationship with the West because it cannot get over this idea that the West as a whole is a threat to Russia and wants to attack it, to dismember it, to destroy Russia as a state. When you have that as the basis for understanding how your relationship should work, it shouldn't be a surprise that we cannot actually get to a normal, grown-up, cooperative relationship like the kind you have with other countries. Putin has been caring less and less, both what the West thinks of its relationships, Russia's relationship with the West, and also how Russia treats its own people. And in both of those areas, Russia has just continued its drift back into its historical comfort zone, back into authoritarianism at home and uh, and confrontational relationships with the rest of the world. This is perfectly normal for Russia. It's the, the 25 years after the end of the Soviet Union that were abnormal. And instead, we're going back to those default states. Now, the unfortunate result of that, of course, is that there's no reason to suspect that things will get any better anytime soon with Russia, even if President Putin is no longer with us, because Putin is not inventing all of the ideas that he acts on, their long-standing Russian principles of how you deal with your own population and how you deal with the rest of the world. We already see a trend of things getting worse under Putin, and uh, Putin's domestic popularity influences Kremlin policy, but of course does not determine it, because just as Putin cares less and less about how he and his country are seen in the rest of the world, so he cares less and less for the pretense at democracy, the pretense uh, that the the Russian population is not repressed, and the pretense that you can have a plurality of opinion there. So as he discards all of these cares and concerns for how the country itself is viewed, both by the rest of the world and at home, so the repression and the confrontation will only get worse because there's no reason for it not to. This is how Russian regimes cling on to power. So Russia, for the time being, despite this drift towards authoritarianism that we're seeing, increasing the pace of crackdowns at home, is actually still in a very liberal period, relatively speaking, compared to the rest of its history. It is far more likely to get worse than it is to get better. Next time on The Big Steel... If it is going to get worse, what will that look like? And how will Russians and the international community respond? We'll explore what those countries closest to Russia and the European Union can do, especially since many of them rely on Russian energy supplies. People outside of Russia may not know this, but the Russian television runs almost constant programs mocking and undermining Europe and European countries and the European Union showing how terrible life is in Europe and how awful it is to live in Sweden or Belgium. And this is a kind of normal part now of, of Russian state propaganda. Nobody outside Brussels would ever consider that the EU has a meaningful response to the challenge that is posed by Russia. The Russian policy towards the EU isn't so much about not taking the EU seriously. It's about a 
concerted, long-term, dedicated effort to destroy it. And what can or should the United Kingdom do? Now, of course, outside the European Union. What of the military alliance, NATO, watching from the sidelines, witnessing Putin's adventures beyond Russia's borders? Putin feels very deeply that Russia was humiliated in the years after 1989. NATO and the EU pushed the borders out eastwards. In Putin's worldview, that was an existential threat to Russia. He senses deep insecurity, I think, when he looks towards NATO. The Big Steel was presented by me, Gavin Esler, and produced for Fresh Air Production by Martin Points Roberts. Be sure to follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Mm -hmm.